Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 17th of December 2023, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurtz speaking on the ministry of John the Baptist. So we have just another eight days to go before Christmas Day. And as I say those words, I wonder whether I sense a shudder in this church for many, including me, about all the things that still need to get done. Food still needing to be got, presents still needing to be bought, particularly for that really awkward person who is difficult to get something for, and 101 other things. It's typical at this time of year, isn't it? And in case you think clergy are way too spiritual to get caught up in all the busyness of Christmas and distracted from its meaning, think again, because it's a danger for every single one of us. But if we wanted to be different this year, if we want our hearts to be really ready to celebrate Jesus' coming, perhaps starting with the Carol Spark Candlelight service this evening, if you're able to get to that, what should we be doing over the next eight days that might make a difference in this regard? What can we be doing to make sure that we're prepared to celebrate the coming of Jesus? Well, this is, of course, where John the Baptist comes in, the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the foretelling of John's birth. Then we've looked last week at his birth itself and the way in which all sorts of things to do with John the Baptist showed that God was doing something new. But this morning, we're looking at Luke's short account of John's ministry. What John did before the ministry of Jesus began and how that can help us to prepare for Jesus' coming. And as Luke likes to do in his gospel, he makes very clear the historical context of the time. John's public ministry began, he says, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. There he is. Tiberius was the successor to Augustus Caesar, who of course had been the Roman emperor when John and Jesus were born. Tiberius had succeeded Augustus around AD 14. So 15 years later means we're around AD 29. Now Herod, the wicked king in the Christmas stories, he was also long dead and his kingdom had been subsequently divided up. The Romans now had their own governor ruling over Judea, that's the yellow bit down near the bottom of the map, and his name was Pontius Pilate. And two of Herod's sons, Herod in the Christmas stories, two of his sons ruled over less important territories as tetrarchs or lesser kings. So Herod Antipas, he ruled over Galilee, that's the purple bits there, mainly in the north but a bit down the side of the Jordan, uh, was within his territories as well. And his brother Philip ruled over Iturea and Trachonitis, that's the bits in green on that map. The other important thing that we're told is that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests in Jerusalem. And even that last part is a statement about the state of the world. You see, the Romans had deposed Annas 
and they'd replaced him with Caiaphas. But for many Jews, Annas was still the rightful high priest. So what are all these details there to say? Well, these details that we're given are basically there to tell us evil still appeared to be in charge. That's what all of these various details are saying. The world was not as it should be, but then things start to change. And they start to change because John appears in the desert preaching what we're told is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now I'll say a bit more about the baptism part of that in a moment, but the forgiveness of sins, that particular expression, that meant that the old era, with all of its problems, was about to give way to a new one. As the Lord returned to his people, bringing his salvation or rescue, because all of the consequences of Israel's sin had been undone. The prophet Isaiah had spoken centuries before about someone coming to make straight the paths ahead of the time when God returned. And for the gospel writers, including Luke, in the account we heard earlier, that man was John, known as John the Baptist. So if we want to experience more of this salvation this Christmas time, if we want to experience a greater degree of the rescue that comes from God, if we want to be ready for what God wants to bring into the world through Jesus, what can we take from John the Baptist, from this man who came precisely for the reason of preparing the way for Jesus? Well, there are at least three things coming out of this passage, I think, that can help us. And the first is this. A big part of the message of John was not to assume our status before God without repentance. I want to be careful about the way I express this because God does want us to be secure about our standing before him rather than plagued by constant anxiety about this. But security is different from complacency. And the thing that makes them different in terms of our belonging to God is genuine repentance. Repentance literally means turning around. It means deciding to stop going one way and deciding instead to go another. And the truth is that many of the people that John spoke to were rather complacent about their status as God's children. The sort of thing they said was that they were the people of Israel. They were descended, after all, from the father of Israel, Abraham. Abraham was the one to whom God made all those amazing promises about possessing a land, the land of Israel, and a great people, more numerous than the stars in the sky. And that's why that picture has been done as it has been. And that meant that for the people of Israel, they were totally different, they supposed, from the dreadful pagans, people like Tiberius and Pontius Pilate. They were part of God's chosen people with that status being utterly secure and immovable. Not necessarily, John the Baptist says to them. He says these words. Don't tell yourselves, people of Israel, that Abraham is your father. 
Don't tell yourself that you are thereby automatically members of God's family, because God, if he wants, can make stones into children of Abraham. The true sign, John said, of those who belong to God's family isn't them belonging to a particular tribe or a particular race, but when you do this, when you produce fruit in keeping with repentance, when you do things, concrete things, that show you're trying to turn your life around and walk in God's way, when there's stuff to show that you're trying in this regard. And John gives a rather scary warning at this point. He says these words. The axe, he says, is at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't produce fruit in accordance with repentance or in keeping with repentance is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. When John said this, he said it directly to those who thought they were part of God's people, come what may. And this is linked to the thing that John was most famous for. You see, baptism was something that existed before John, and it was part of what was used when pagan Gentiles decided that they wanted to become Jews. Such people, if they wanted to convert from paganism to becoming Jews, they uh, would undergo baptism, probably by being completely submerged in water to symbolize God's washing away of the sin in their lives. So baptism before John comes along is the way that pagan Gentiles, they enter in to God's people. And John, rather shockingly, took this symbol of entry into God's people for pagan Gentiles, this symbol of the washing away of sin, and what he said was that everyone, without exception, needed this. Whatever pedigree they thought they had within God's people, whatever their racial or their tribal background, however much they thought they were insiders by virtue of what they'd been born into, John said they had to undergo baptism. Everyone did. The people of Israel, just as much as pagans like Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, just as much as renegade semi-Jews like Herod Antipas and his brother Philip, they needed firstly to repent and then they needed to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And baptism was the symbol that summed up that commitment. And if we want to be really ready to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ in eight days' time, if we want our heart to be in the right place to fully throw ourselves into that celebration of the Jesus of coming, Jesus is coming, we'll have given some thought to what it means for us to produce fruits in accordance with repentance. What does that involve us doing? Well, it involves us asking searching questions about what parts of our life really do need to change. So is there a part of your life that you know is wrong? Is there an attitude towards someone or perhaps something that you do know deep in your heart needs attention? 
Is there a type of behaviour that badly needs to change, both for your sake and perhaps for the sake of others? Now, we'll get on to how that can happen in a moment. What we're talking about for now is the desire to see change there by admitting that there's a problem and being determined to see that change come. Spend some time over the next eight days before Christmas Day considering what that might be and being resolved to bring it before God for him to change this. That's all part of responding to this challenge of producing fruit in keeping with repentance. And it really is the best possible use that we can make of this time ahead of Christmas Day. But in case we think that repentance is just about vaguely positive statements of intent, John shows that it's far more practical. It's far more down-to-earth than that. He really does give us a great deal of insight into what repentance means in practice. Because the second thing that we can learn from John as we prepare for the coming of Jesus is this. True repentance, a true turning around in our lives, is resolving to use every opportunity that we can to do good and reject evil. John spoke about this when those listening to him asked what they could do. They responded by saying, well, what can we do in the light of what you're calling us to? And John's answers to the people when they asked him this were really very simple. And here are some examples. John said this. He said the man, and it applies to the woman as well, with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. And then some tax collectors, people who were hated and despised because they swindled people, <coughs> they came to be baptised by John as well. And when they asked what they should do, John said this. John told them not to collect any more than the Romans required them to. In other words, he summoned those tax collectors not to collect the extra cut that was all part of the incentive that most people had for doing that job. There was no point in becoming despised and hated tax collector for the enemy occupying forces if you weren't making quite a fat sum of money on the side from that. That was all part of the deal. And then some soldiers perhaps Roman soldiers, possibly Herod soldiers, because the territory in which John was baptising was that strip down the Jordan where Herod had his authority. They asked him the same question. And this is what John said to those soldiers. He told them to be content with their pay rather than taking the easy and acceptable option of extorting from people who had no redress about this. Soldiers were allowed to just march into people's houses, take some food and drink and so on, and no one was going to be troubled by them doing that to the civilian population. So that's John's teaching about what repentance looks like in practice. And it's only recorded in Luke's Gospel. You don't get that in Matthew or Mark or John. And really it is very simple. In fact, it's so simple that some biblical scholars have even seen Luke as making John the Baptist's teaching as deliberately banal so that Jesus' teaching stands out that much more brightly in comparison. But that's completely missing the point. 
What John is saying is deliberately simple and accessible. What John is saying is that all of us have the opportunity every day, and in ways that people might consider quite small and inconsequential, all of us have the constant opportunity to pursue good and reject evil. Often, he said, in very small acts of generosity or in small acts of greed. And it's that daily resolve to produce fruit in accordance with repentance that makes us take that daily decision to choose the good and reject the evil. Now that application will be different for each one of us. It may be material or financial, like these examples that John gives. Is there a way that we could be more generous on a regular basis to others with what we have? Perhaps regarding the use of our time or our possessions. Are there ways that we're making money or exploiting people for this that's perfectly legal but ethically wrong? Producing fruit in keeping with repentance is when we go beyond what the law says. We go beyond what we can get away with and we resolve to live in a certain way because we know that living in the alternative way grieves God's heart. And it prevents us as well becoming the fully human being that God made us to be. God's instruction for how we should live isn't arbitrary, it isn't because God for whatever reason has got his own standards which he for some reason wants to hold us to, it's because God wants us to be fully human beings, flourishing by being outward looking and loving and generous and becoming more fully alive as we reflect his character. You see, put more positively, producing fruit in keeping repentance, in keeping with repentance, is when we, as I say, resolve every day to use the opportunities available to us to bring more of God's goodness into the world. Now, we won't always manage that, and God will forgive us when we fail and when we ask for that forgiveness. But every day is a fresh opportunity. Every day is a fresh opportunity for us to show those random acts of love and kindness, as they're sometimes termed, which represent the repentance that God calls us to. We can think repentance is just being contrite and down about how many ways we get things wrong. It's not. Repentance is a far more positive word. Repentance is turning from a negative way of living and embracing an utterly positive and loving way of living. Now, of course, this is easier said than done, which is where John's final point comes in, which is this. True repentance is recognising the unique power that comes with Jesus. See, after John the Baptist said and did the things that he said and did, there were some who wondered whether he might be the Messiah. There were some who, understandably, given the charisma of this guy and uh, the strength of his message and the fact that people were responding to it, there were some who thought John himself might be the rescuer that Israel was looking for. Now, whether they explicitly asked this or whether John just picked up that that's what they were thinking, he had an answer. 
And his answer straightforwardly was no. And John said these words. He said, I come and baptize you with water, he said, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That was the first thing that John said. But then he added that this person, who he said he wasn't fit to untie his sandals, this person was coming to sort the world out and get rid of its evil with a power that had no previous parallel. And of course, this person that John was speaking about was Jesus. Comparing the baptism of John with the baptism of Jesus, comparing our efforts to repent with what God can do for us in Jesus, it's a little bit like comparing trying to clean a filthy car with a water pistol with cleaning it with a proper detergent and a jet washer. There's no comparison at all. And preparing to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas time is all about recognizing that we're about to celebrate the coming into this world of the most extraordinary power that has ever entered it. The only power that can change this world and change our lives and the things that are wrong within them or the things that have got into a real mess. The only thing that can really bring change is this. The utterly powerful and transforming power of God's love in that baby placed in the manger. That is the love that came to change this world forever. And that's the love that we can be part of. And we can share in its power if we're prepared to give Jesus control over our lives. That love and its extraordinary power to change this world, that love can live within us and it can do its work through us. And that's what Christmas is all about. But to be ready to receive that love and to experience the fullness of its power, our, our hearts need to be open in repentance. We need to have the desire to turn our lives around to the direction that God wants them to be. And if that desire is there, if we have the genuine humility to acknowledge that there are parts of our lives that need to change, and if we're already resolved to do what we can to make this happen, we'll be ready for Jesus. We'll be ready for Jesus' love to come more fully into our lives with a love that can make things possible for us and others through us in ways that we can't imagine. So if we're serious about this, amidst all the busyness of the next eight days, we'll try to carve out a little bit of time to use those days to be ready for Jesus. Let's take time to think about this. Perhaps if we're planning to come to Carols by Candlelight this evening, perhaps let's take a little bit of this afternoon, a few moments to reflect on what repentance means and what it really might mean in our case. And then let's come ready to celebrate the coming of Jesus into this world and all that means because we've prepared in the best possible way by being serious about producing fruit 
been hoodwinked with repentance. Before Katie takes over and we have no fuller prayers, let's just pray about that now. Father God, we want to respond to you. So we ask that you would open our hearts more fully to you. Would you guide us to the things that we need to think about and be resolved to change in our lives or see changed by you? Would you lead us to what it means to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? We commit ourselves to seeking to see that happen in our lives and we ask for your help for that to happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.